Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman Centenary Podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis. And yes, it's our birthday. The New Statesman was founded in 1913 by Beatrice and Sidney Webb. And to celebrate, 100 years later, we're publishing a 180-page special edition featuring, and here I'm going to take a deep breath, Ed Miliband, A.S. Byatt, Tony Blair, Vince Cable, Julian Barnes, Stuart Lee, Susan Cowan, Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, Mark Mazzaro, Robert Skilsky, John Gray, Will Self, Laurie Penny, Natasha Walter, and many, many more. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking to Yanis Babulias about austerity in Greece, delving into the NS archive with Jonathan Derbyshire and Philip Maughan, talking pessimism with Will Self and Sophie Elmhurst, chatting a little bit about whether Bitcoin is a bubble and asking whether the left won the 20th century. As we go, the New Statesman staff will read out some of the centenary clarihues written for us by Craig Brown. But first, we'll look at the big political news of the week, the death of Margaret Thatcher and the left's response to it. I'm joined by Raphael Bear, our political editor, and George Eaton, editor of the Staggers blog, to talk about the legacy of Margaret Thatcher, who died on Monday, 8th of April. I'm going to ask you both, George, first, whose um, who's tribute to her do you think was, was the best perception of her character? Um, well, I read a rather good piece by Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian where he pointed out that we are essentially still living in Maggie's Britain and that the current government is continuing her project of rolling back the states. They're not always doing it with the same sort of ideological and rhetorical fervour but they are rolling back and touching, privatising parts of the state that Thatcher actually never went near. And, uh, and that is really a, a tribute to the uh, influence she's continued to have on the conservative mindsets. And Raph, who would you nominate? Well, I have to admit, I found the piece that George Osborne uh, authored, I think he probably wrote it himself, actually. It was quite personal. It was about taking his, one of his children to meet uh, Baroness Thatcher in the House of Commons uh, not the sort of thing you'd ghostwrite. I mean, it was in the Times. Um, and I sort of found it fascinating because, as always with these things, there was something unintentionally revealing about it. The sort of soft cultural of affection of a young man of that generation, youngish man of that generation, for Thatcher. The All the sort of cultural assumptions about how much this is sort of in, an inevitable, natural part of our intellectual landscape and beyond any question. Um, obviously, there are a lot of people on the left who would read that and be, would be kind of appalled by it. But 
for that reason, I think it, it was quite an important piece. It's quite challenging. It does explain something about where this generation of conservatives come from and how they do see Margaret Thatcher as and as essential a part of their political world as, you know, the sun in the sky. And you were in an extraordinary position uh, yesterday of being on the train with Ed Miliband when he got the news. I was. I was was quite literally sitting next to Ed Miliband when um, uh, having a conversation, uh, which will remain off the record, when uh, an aide just sort of leant over and said, "Uh, we have to stop this now, Um, Margaret Thatcher has died. Um, there was a lot of suggestion yesterday that this was an incredibly difficult situation for him to respond to. He needed to appear statesmanlike, but acknowledge that many people, many Labour supporters, you know, really got you know, viscerally hate Margaret Thatcher. And how? how yeah, did he I mean, play I was, I was so, I'm sorry to disappoint the, all the there were people sort of on Twitter saying, "Oh, there must be absolute panic. They're probably all sort of wetting themselves in the Miliband high command." And I had to resist the temptation to tweet back saying, "Well, I'm here, and I'm afraid they really aren't." And um, I, you know. I, if they if they were, I would have said so. But honestly, the, I mean, Miliband himself, he focused immediately on the task. He was on the train. He had about 15 minutes to, to, to draft a statement. And he and a couple of his um, senior advisors just worked out the, the formulation. And, and, and actually, in a way, the framework of it was quite clear. I mean, the, Thatcher is a hate figure for all the people on the left in the Labour Party. Um, but... Ed Miliband is a man who aspires to be prime minister of the whole country. And if he can't recognise that there are a lot of people who ultimately he thinks should vote Labour, whose lives or whose parents' lives are transformed by the, for the better by things like the right to buy, by some of the tax cuts uh, in the 1980s, then he's not qualified to be the one nation, in quotes, prime minister that he wants to be. So I, I don't think there was any doubt that he was going to get the tone right. And I think actually he did. I think the more surprising thing is actually there was more discipline more widely on the Labour side and there weren't that many sort of short fused idiots coming out and, and, and sort of expressing intemperate glee inappropriately. And George, I mean you were on monitoring social media yesterday. There there really wasn't anything from any Labour MP that was you know, that would have been grist for that mill of, you know, this is a terrible left wing reaction to Thatcher, was there? That's right. I think because she was such a political giant, I think the and and because she vanquished socialism <clears throat> and it's never recovered. And she said her ultimate achievement was her greatest achievement was New Labour, and she was right about that. I think the left recognises they need to make more of an effort to understand why they lost and how the left can recover and how it can actually uh, sort of achieve some of what Thatcher did, but from the left in terms of that commitment to principles, to values and to pursuing policies that reflect them. And also, bear in mind, she was a very old lady, but she's an elderly woman uh, in the advanced stages of illness, and uh, that puts the, in a category of people who will say spiteful things about her. That's a, a pretty small and pretty sort of culturally, socially off-balance segment of people, to be honest. And you wrote a blog then, George, about inequality during the Thatcher years, and I just wondered how you sense. You know, obviously we've seen her prism, you know, what she achieved reflected through a kind of very triumphalist prism in a lot of places. But generally, do you think that we have, we are taking stock of that and taking the right lessons from what she did? I think broadly, yes, in in terms of the triumph of market economics, and and that was when the surge in inequality began. It rose slightly under Labour, but much of it happened under under Thatcher, and and Britain's never really managed to reverse that trend since. But uh, there were some ironies to her rule, and it's true she was a more pragmatic figure that a lot of people remember. I mean, for instance, she signed the Single European Act, which was a very integrationist treaty in which a lot of conservatives now would um, would attack Cameron for, for doing. 
um, she um, really didn't touch the NHS in, in the way the coalition has. She and, raised spending on yes. social security every year in real terms, as far as I'm aware, pretty much. That's right. I mean, so, so actually there was the rhetoric of rolling back the state, but actually in, in terms of in practice, she was, she was less successful at that than, than a lot of conservatives like to remember. And Raf, finally, um, you were obviously there with Ed Miliband talking about a little bit about welfare, but primarily about his plan for pay, restrictions on payday companies, payday loan companies. That's presumably going to restart next week once a sort of suitable period has been observed. Do you think that is something that will catch the public mood? This is the flagship, well, a, one of the a sort of small flotilla of policies for Labour's local election campaign. And specifically, the idea is that you give local authorities more control to over what the use of properties on the high street is, which means essentially a local authority could that could be have more entitlement to say no you can't sell a payday loan company i i sadly actually i think this is one of those issues that will not get a lot of media attention just because inside westminster in sw1 people who write about politics this isn't doesn't affect them i think the reason ed has chosen it as an issue is because actually he's getting fed up to him he's getting sort of information from people in local councillors saying this is actually a massive issue for us and he recognises that it's something that could get a lot of political traction on the ground in county council elections, uh, probably a little bit under the radar of um, mainstream Westminster commentary. Thank you, George and Raf. Richard Dawkins favours Radio Talkins. Prof, we're putting you through to God on line two. I'm joined by Philip Morn, who's been the, our research assistant on the centenary issue, and Jonathan Derbyshire, the cultural editor, to talk a little bit about delving into the New Statesman's archives. Phil, first of all, you've spent a couple of months now looking at all our old pieces. What, what was the thing that most surprised you? I suppose um, while going through the archive, I've been most surprised and impressed by the breadth of um, the cultural comp- uh, contribution to the magazine's history. I think people vaguely know where the New Statesman stands in terms of its politics, but seldom do they realise that, you know, 50% of the magazine from 1913 has been filled with great writing about books and ideas. Um, so come on, reel off, reel off some of the names. <laughs> OK, well, I'm very into my American literature. I was pleased to see Edmund Wilson was a writer, Philip Raff, the great literary critic. Uh, Malcolm Bradbury, obviously British, but wrote a lot about that sort of stuff. But beyond that, I mean, we have sort of... We have creative kind of non-fiction as well. We've recently published a piece by Doris Lessing, which I thought was absolutely mm. brilliant. William Trevor, you know, Graham Greene, all the kind of... Uh, I don't know, talking of Graham Greene, <laughs> okay. what is the Graham Greene anecdote? Because I know you have one. There is a good story with Graham Greene. Um, and uh, what happened was that there was a competition running the back pages. The system was also very famous for its competitions. Um, and uh, the competition was to imitate Graham Greene. Um, and the man himself decided he would, would give it a pop, wrote in, and came second. So, you know, he's uh, he's not the best Graham Greene. <laughs> <laughs> I would there. like to go and find that guy who was better, a better Graham Greene yeah. than Graham Greene. Funny I, enough, I think Spandau Ballet did a similar thing in the 80s. They entered a Spandau Ballet tribute competition. Obviously, they were in many ways the Graham Greene of their day. <laughs> um, JD, you've commissioned some of the people that, um, you know, now write for us, some of these massive figures of today. Mm. But you've also written a piece for the centenary issue about past literary editors. And there was this idea that the New Statesman was a, was a pantomime horse. And I wonder if you could explain why that was. Yes, the pantomime horse uh, metaphor refers to the way the magazine has always been split between the political front half and the and the literary back. 
Um, and I was reminded of this recently when I commissioned the literary critic and academic John Sutherland to write a, a review of a book about English writers and the intelligence services. Uh, and in that piece, Sutherland was trying to defend uh, Stephen Spender against the familiar charge that when he was working at the magazine Encounter, um, he'd known more than he'd let on about CIA funding of that magazine. And Sutherland wrote uh, in his piece that um, Spender wasn't the editor of the magazine, he was the literary editor, and he wrote, and I quote, he was no more influential on the political front half of Encounter than, I suspect, the literary editor of this magazine is on the New Statesman. Um, and I was slightly miffed when I read that <laughs> uh, remark. Um, because I've been known to um, try my hand at the odd uh, leading article or two. Um, but more seriously, it was very interesting because it reproduced that very um, influential picture of how the New Statesman is organised between the stolidly socialistic front half and the um, urbane, belletristic back half. But we see in the centenary issue, don't we? I mean, we've got essays by Mark Mazower, by John Gray, by Robert Skidelsky, who are all people who appear pretty regularly in, in the back half. Uh, indeed, and we've... Uh, also got A.S. Barrett, we've got original fiction, which uh, and, and original poetry, actually. And that's something worth remembering, that ever since the foundation of the magazine in 1913, there's been a commitment to publishing new poetry. The first literary editor of the magazine, wonderful character called J.C. Squire, um, was, uh, as well as being literary editor of the magazine, was also a, um, an accomplished parodist and a minor poet. Um, he wrote a couple of verses which uh, T.S. Eliot um, commended, uh, Unfortunately, Squire didn't return the favour. He loathed Eliot and um, all that Eliot represented. Um, Are you a minor poet? Can we? Uh, can you read us a few of your your verses? No, I won't. No, I won't. Uh, on, on that subject, though, I, I would like to to be the the skeleton jumping out of the closet right now. I think one of the greatest things about being uh, sort of an archivist at the magazine is that you can uh, unearth some of the horrors from days gone by. Um, on the 24th of September 1960, the New Statesman published the first translation of a poem called Midstream by um, none other than Chairman Mao. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the famed mid-century poet, Chairman Mao. Yes, exactly. I mean, like you know, much understated, um, you know, literary uh, talent. Yeah. Verse master. Can you read us a, a line from... Well, from Chairman Man, nice because I'm triplet here at the end of the okay. first stanza, <laughs> you know, soon to be anthologized everywhere now that we've rediscovered it. He says, I stared from a desolate tower and asked the immense earth, who decrees the rise, the fall? Mom well, moment's <laughs> introspection there from. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's left us all slightly <laughs> stunned into si silence. Um, you mentioned Squires, and is yes. he, um, Jonathan, is he your favourite literary editor from the past? Um, well, it was slightly chastening doing some research on my predecessors in the chair because they all seem to um, eke out the last days of their lives in rather unfortunate circumstances. Squire uh, left the New Statesman in 1920, went on to um, become the lead reviewer of The Observer, of all things. Um, but it seems that he. Sometime in the late 1920s, early 1930s, lost interest in literary criticism. Um, and the story is that he eked out the last days of his life living in a, a hotel in Surbiton. And occasionally he would tip up to um, central London. And there's a story that he once appeared at the Athenaeum, and I'm going to quote from his biography, wearing uh, the following outfit. White flannels, black evening slippers, a badly moth-eaten blue high-necked pullover, a wing collar, and an old Blundellian tie. Uh, a look I've always tried to emulate, as um, <laughs> Helen and Phil will attest. Well, on that sartorial note, I'm going to leave it. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan and Phil. Thank you. John Maynard Keynes helped workers lose their chains and, by way of relaxation, wrote the inflation of currency as a method of taxation.
Hi everybody, I'm Daniel Trilling, Assistant Editor at The New Statesman and also Editor of The New Statesman's Austerity and Its Discontents blog, which is a blog about Europe, focusing on the social and political effects of the uh, financial crisis and uh, the austerity measures that governments across Europe are trying to put in place. Uh, with me I have Yanis Babulias, a uh, New Statesman contributor both online and in print, and our contributing editor Laurie Penny. Hello. Hi to both of you. Hello. Um, so I think first of all I might ask Yanis just to talk about a bit about what he's uh, been working on recently. Obviously you, you focus on Greece. Um, I guess the, the sort of most recent big event was the, the leader of Syriza, Alexis Tsipras, uh, visited London and you, you actually got the chance to interview him, didn't you? Uh, yes, I managed to, I had the chance to interview uh, Alexis Tsipras uh, on Sunday, two days after his speech in uh, at friend's house um, it was a very interesting it was a very interesting conversation mainly because uh, Tsipras has been in in a quest to find new allies in Europe and elsewhere and we did get the chance to speak about his his uh, not aspiration but his idea that he might find uh, a suitable partner in uh, in in Britain by in, in the face of uh, Labour, if they decide to radicalise further and to be more daring, mm. as he characteristically said. And this was something that raised eyebrows among the British political press, wasn't it? That Tsipras said he'd, he'd not only met with uh, sort of left-wing Labour MPs, but he'd, he'd met a delegation led by John Cruddis, who is in, mm. uh, in charge of Labour's policy review. Um, I suppose it brings out a kind of tension with Syriza, who've been, you know, they've been held up as this kind of great new hope mm. of the radical left. Um, there's been a lot of um, overwrought media coverage from from the right and from business interests saying, you know, these guys are sort of revolutionaries or anarchists mm. and they're going to destroy everything. Mm. And uh, obviously, Tsipras now has to do two things really that that kind of contradict one another, which is convince the world's political elite that um, you know they can work with him and to build a wider movement and, and work with people that are perhaps more moderate than Syriza. But then he also has to keep his movement on side and that's their sort of their their unique selling point really is that they, they've got the radical alternative to the crisis and you know if he loses that then he loses Syriza's uh, bargaining chip. The, the problem with uh, what people expect of Syriza is that they expect that Syriza is going to change the situation across Europe if they win the, the next elections mm -hmm. when they happen which is impossible. Syriza is not going to save Britain if if it, in the way things look like right now, uh, the uh, Conservatives are going to lose the next elections and Syriza will probably win the next elections and they will have to work together on a European stage. You can't go around just dismissing uh, the next leaders of a nation, which is the same with Germany as well. He might not, he, he will never have anything in common with Schäuble, but yeah, and uh, Laurie, I, I was wondering, as as you've done a bit of travelling and you've been elsewhere mm -hmm. in Europe, I mean, one of, one of the things that Tsipras has said is he wants to build a kind of pan-European anti-austerity movement, but particularly with the southern European countries, the countries that are really feeling the brunt of austerity. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I found interesting as I've travelled around reporting in Europe over the last couple of years is the way that responses to the crisis, both from the left and from the right, have been quite parochial. They've been focused on either nationalist movement from the right, obviously in Greece you have the terrifying rise of the Golden Dawn, but also from the left there are focuses on, right, what do we do within our communities 
and a sense that the European project has failed. Um, and this applies to Britain too, although young people in Britain don't see themselves as part of Europe in the same way that I think people in the rest of Europe see Britain as part of Europe. The, I, and it's very interesting to see what the response will be because there is a very visceral reaction against pan-Europeanism, particularly amongst amongst young people who have less of a sense of what the European project is for. Is that is that true um, to the same extent everywhere? I mean, my impression of Spain, for example, and of Greece is that there was quite a lot of uh, you know sort of solidarity expressed between the protest movements in two countries. So. So, for example, the, the the Greek movement of the squares—they deliberately called themselves the Indignados, taking, oh, yes. a, you know, t taking the name of the Spanish movement that had already sprung up. So, and of course, you had the uh, coordinated strikes last autumn mm. between uh, several countries in southern Europe. But um, it's about a different. There's a difference between how the left itself is reacting and how the people of a country are reacting. The left, yeah. including in Britain, uh, very much want to see a pan-European movement build and the idea that you know, we're all going to get together and, and, and make a massive pan-European general strike but at the moment that feels quite far away from happening not just in terms of policy but in terms of what people on the ground seem to be attracted to which is which is sad. Yeah. Now uh, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about was just uh, the idea with this austerity and its discontent blog is partly to draw in voices that aren't already in the mainstream media and kind of cross posts from bloggers and try and build up a network of bloggers around Europe. Um, and I just wondered, I mean, following on from that idea, really, that if, if there is a need to build some sort of international, you know, have some sense of a, a sort of pan-European movement, um, what do either of you think about the ways in which the crisis is reported on and what writers can do, do to sort of foster that sense? Well, one of the things that should have happened and has and has in a certain extent happened now is to debunk the uh, the propaganda around austerity and how the uh, how austerity is only inflicted upon the uh, the, the, the those who deserve it that uh, the Greeks or the Italians or the Spanish were the lazy ones uh, or the um, fiscally responsible countries and just start debunking this by saying that look when Spain for instance entered the crisis had uh, lower debt uh, ratio than, uh, than, than Germany, which this has not actually entered the mainstream conversation as an argument because you hear that uh, Spain was fiscally responsible, but uh, mm -hmm. all the numbers point to the exact opposite. They point that, and th that it wasn't, that wasn't the case, and it yeah, took us years Portugal, to for example, <clears throat> or Portugal. Is no, you know, it, it was the kind of good people of the or, Eurozone doing everything. Or, or you, could, you mm -hmm. and you don't hear enough that, for instance, uh, Holland has a ballooning private debt, which is soon going to blow up and turn into public debt. And the the, uh, the Dutch have been like on the, on the side like the um, of they've been on the side of um, of Germany and Finland as the responsible ones, mm. as the good Northern European. Crucially, yeah, they're a Northern European country. The fact that um, the fact that the crisis in the eurozone is is coinciding with a crisis in public in popular ownership. Of, uh, of, me of the media, of uh, newspapers and magazines and TV stations, particularly in somewhere like Greece. Mm -hmm. When we visited uh, to write the book I did with Moe Crabapple, the school dear, 
we, uh, we visited Eleutheroptopia and uh, the newspaper and talked a lot about the crisis in media funding and ownership, how propaganda is pushed out from national governments. I think there is very much an opportunity for young people across Europe who are writing and creating media and content, and there are lots of us to come together and form something, form, form something in solidarity that can debunk those myths. Mm -hmm. Okay, well that's about all we have time for now. It's a fascinating discussion. I hope we can continue it online and in the pages of the magazine. Uh, thanks, Yanis, and thanks, Laurie. Thank you. Cheers. Harold Pinter outraged the statesman wooden printer, poem called Fucking Yankee Shit Wank Jerk, yells that it's a hugely important work. Hello, I'm Sophie Elmhurst, the Features Editor of The New Statesman, and I'm sitting here with Will Self, who's been a contributor to The New Statesman for nearly 30 years. Today, he's one of our most treasured columnists, writing every week on such varied subjects as the London Super Comic Convention and the ubiquitous coffee shop Costa. In our special centenary edition this week, he's written a powerful essay on the subject of pessimism, why it defines his worldview and why that's a good thing. And he's here to talk about it. Um, so, Will, at the start of the piece, you write very movingly about your mother and how you inherited your pessimism from her. And I wondered where she got hers from and why it was so influential on you. Um, where, where she got her pessimism from? I think, she, as, as I you know, say in the piece, so perhaps it's not so egregious to quote yourself in this context, um, she was a depression child. And, and I think in the States, she was American and grew up in New York. And I think for her generation, born in 1922, the, the formative experience of the depression years, uh, they must have felt that because, I mean, somewhat analogous, I suppose, to somebody being born now in 2009. <laughs> uh, certainly, if things continue the way I suspect they will. Uh, you know, somebody born with a kind of epigenous feeling that, you know, before them was this great, you know, gleaming lifestyle that was then robbed and the parents bringing the children up under these straitened circumstances and this sense of kind of impending economic doom. And then I suppose by the time she reached her late teens and then into her early 20s, uh, the impending catastrophe of a European and then a world war uh, and, you know, the, the growing intimations uh, of the Holocaust uh, taking place as well. And since she was Jewish, and she used to say to me when I was a kid, uh, that, you know, they received letters from family in the old country asking for money, which, of course, they realised later had been the Gestapo had forced them to, to write. And, you know, that kind of thing going on is a very, is a shaper of a, I mean, I suppose I use the term pessimism loosely. I think people understand pessimism to be a uh, kind of unilateral expectation that things will turn out badly. I suppose what I'm saying is it's a, it's a, a good basis for pessimism or a good deployment of pessimism is to expect the worst. In other words, to base your calculations and your choices and your responses on the assumption that things may turn out very, very badly indeed. And I'm sure that comes, uh, was handed down to me from a consciousness that grew up under those kinds of political and social and economic conditions. Mm -hmm. 
and you sort of nominate Churchill um, <laughs> as the godfather of this worldview, which at first seems surprising when you, I suppose, think how he's now thought of and remembered sort of heroically and mm. in some ways optimistically. Um, and I wondered if you could just explain why he was your... Well, certainly, <laughs> I mean... Churchill's stand against the appeasers uh, in the, the latter half of the 1930s was based on a pessimistic assumption, which was the assumption uh, that turned out to be absolutely correct, that, that Hitler's um, you know, territorial ambitions were boundless. Uh, you know, so everybody else, you know, whether they broke it up into, into you know, Mosley was an appeaser. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I mean, almost everybody right across the right to left political spectrum in the second half of the 1930s in Britain was, was an appeaser of some form or another. So Churchill does stand as a beacon now of a profoundly pessimistic expectation mm. that, that Hitler's Germany would, would prove to be uh, hell-bent on, on, a, on, a, on a world war and on world domination. So he was right on that basis. Yeah. And I suppose, by contrast, you um, you cite the Thatcher Blair neoliberal consensus as being the, a classic case of misguided optimism. And I suppose it's a good moment, uh, given her recent death, to sort of dwell on that and and whether that dream is truly dead or actually whether it's really still carrying on. Well, I think actually, to be fair to to Thatcher, she did have elements of pessimism in her political political makeup. And what people tend to call in, in the context of political leadership pragmatism is really pessimism, actually. Mm. And they, it's just pragmatism is a kind of cosmetic term for the ability to understand that you can only get things done in anticipation of things buggering up or unforeseen circumstances or bad outcomes. And Thatcher actually did have oodles of pragmatism up to a certain point. So I think she was quite pessimistic. I never felt that the sense in which Thatcher was a conviction politician, which is being bruited about, you know, 24-7 since her death yesterday and will continue, I suspect, mm. though speaking for once with my optimist's hat on, uh, you know, and uh, my son Luther, who's here with me, was asking me on the way here, you know, what was going on, why wasn't anybody saying what an awful woman she was. Uh, and, uh, you know, the backlash will come in the next few days. And one of the areas in which, you know, people are saying, well, Thatcher was a conviction politician, she did what she believed in and so on and so forth. In, in actual fact, her convictions seemed to me essentially quite narrow-minded and quite class-bound and quite to do with a kind of more like exaggerated attitudinizing than genuine convictions. And the extent to which she was signed up to what I would damn as the optimists program, which is represented really by the Fukuyama essay that I name check, which, you know, no matter what one's view of it now, actually has become 
more and more to be a touch point around which the axis of uh, neoliberal and neoconservative uh, ambitions have turned. Uh, Thatcher was never, you know, she was, you know, as Martin Amis said of Blair, you know, she was not a reader. You know, she was not an intellectual, really, of any kind of standing, and, and not a theoretician. And she tended to buy that stuff in, whether it was through Keith Joseph or Alan Waters or, you know, whoever it was. Mm. So I think the extent to which, you know, what she was against was, was socialism, and what she was against was the power of, of the proletariat. What she was against was the working class, and boy, did she wreak damage on, on the working class as a result. What she was for, in the sense of, well, was she for the kind of uh, Panglossian idea that the hidden hand of the market is the best manipulator in the best of all possible worlds? Yes, but not to the extent or with the ideological complexity of the people who were the real formers of that programme. I think that that was a kind of... They were her fellow travellers and they carried her forward ideologically because mm. I don't actually think that her own evolved ideological position amounted to very much at all. Hmm. That's fascinating. And, uh, I mean, your ideological position, as as you set it out, is that you're still idealistic, which is the surprising word to use, for an egalitarian, I'm quoting, an essentially socialistic society. And I wondered how such a hope sat with your kind of confirmed doom-mongering um, status. Well, I think it's, you know, what I'm trying to say is that... that, that I suppose what I'm trying to say in the piece is that, that, which a lot of people say, actually, when, I mean, people are constantly throwing up their hands when they come to discuss politics and to discuss what the relationship between the individual, the state and political change is and say, you know, well, you've got to take responsibility yourself. There's got to be what happened to communitarian action, what happened to local involvement. And what I'm saying is that all of those, you know, all of that hand-wringing uh, takes place because of false optimism, yeah. you know, and, and in fact that the pessimism, a proper attitude of pessimism is the only one that brings the individual face to face uh, with her own impotence and her own potency at the same time mm. and makes it possible to think, well, what can I actually do mm. in this context? What am I capable of doing? And uh, what do I believe in? You know, it seems to me, it's always it seemed to me for a long time that the kind of utopian socialist views that I have are, or are, are just that they're utopian, <laughs> <laughs> and therefore they're quite clearly an article of belief. I mean, yeah. Unless you're a Marxist, where there's this sort of strange, uh, you know, where where you see history as as uh, or you see individuals' political in, in, involvement and mainstream as being somehow mystically aligning themselves with these magnetic currents of historical development until it all reaches a kind of critical mass and that you know uh, which I've frankly never really believed I've always viewed Marxism as an excellent critique of existing power relations but no kind of uh, recipe for for how to uh, achieve uh, change uh, then then you know what other other view can you take of, of personal political conviction, you know, because uh, and the the answer is the view that people take is to optimistically place to to as it were um, uh, outsource their perspicacity, their assessment of risk, uh, their uh, you know to believe in a division of labour, 
these areas essentially you know which is why of course in the wake of Thatcher's death we can we're treated to, to people talking such endless bollocks it's what the mystique of leadership consists in is is many many individuals saying oh I can't possibly do that somebody like Thatcher must do it or even more preposterously somebody like Ed Miliband must do it you know it's a sort of um and I suppose what I'm saying is that a true pessimism allows you to take take back that responsibility. Mm. Well, as you put it so eloquently, shit happens, but until it does, make hay. Yes, which is I think so. A pretty good moral to the story. Um, finally, it's the New Statesman centenary. Um, you've been involved in the magazine for nearly a third of that time. Yes. Um, has it changed? Any thoughts on its birthday? Well, I mean, I mean when I, I came to the offices in Turnmill Street uh, off High Holborn in 1982, I guess, maybe 81, 81 or 2, and Julian Rothenstein, who now runs um, Redstone Press, was the uh, acting art editor, and Anna Coote was the acting editor, and it was three or four stories up winding dark stairs and of course it was well we're not that far from Fleet Street now but it was still a Fleet Street that you know was hot metal and the you know, compositors on the stone and all of that stuff but I mean I was hawking cartoons and and I don't I was, it was always a pretty dreadful cartoonist they didn't draw very well or anything like that but Julian very sweetly and Anna gave me a break and I started to do um, illustrative and spot cartoons for the staggers, and then a strip under Hugh Stevenson, uh, which was a real Thatcherite strip. It was called Slump, and it was about a kind of Oblomov stroke Andy Cap character whose response to the economic recession was to get into bed and stay there. And um, that pretty much reflected my own response to the recession having left university uh, was to kind of get I had I had one cartoon with the staggers one weekly cartoon and one with city limits which was the kind of strike breakers yeah. listings mag after they'd left the time out time out Tony Elliott had taken time out into the moor of capitalism and uh, that was about all I did actually I did spend the rest of my time in bed and what you know I, I remember though being I mean, I don't know what it's like now. I have no idea. As a, as a freelancer, I, I haven't been near the office. This is nearest I've been to the office in years. But it felt quite collegiate back then. It was still, I think, there was still a sense of um, quite close involvement with the Fabians. I remember going down to play the Fabians cricket at the Webb House in Surrey. And I remember going, I played on the cricket team, going to play the Staggers team, played against the health and safety executive. Where I think I... <laughs> Right, remembering that Julian Barnes um, bowled a full toss onto the head of the captain of the health and safety executive team. And there was a kind of sort of, there seemed to me as a young man, I, mean, I was 20 or 21, quite a kind of collegiate atmosphere. And I would go in every week, of course, because there wasn't faxes or anything. So I'd go in every week to deliver myself. So I did see people around. And I remember when... Uh, the office was still in Terminal Street going to a Christmas party and Duncan Campbell being there with his special branch sauce, who I was incredibly impressed by, who wore a tie with a branch on it, which I thought was just the dernier cri. And also Duncan telling me at that point about how he'd got into the secret government tunnels uh, with his folding bicycle and cycled around them at night. So there was... 
know, there was quite a lot of stuff going on. I remember hearing quite a lot of stuff. I remember under Hugh Stevenson, who always seemed to be terribly kind of patrician, laid back figure. And I must have been there under John Lloyd as well. Uh, also seemed rather patrician and laid back figure. But things gradually over through the 80s, uh, seeming a little bit more straightened. I think that the magazine was declining from mm. the sort of, uh, you know, Colonel B high point uh, and was entering a bit of a, a, a slough at that point. But yeah, I, as I say, I don't know what it's like now, but it seemed to me to have a kind of slight, you know, men in open-toed sandals <laughs> driving their Austin 7s kind of club ability to it. Yeah, I, th I think it's safe to say it's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> um, on which note, thanks very much for coming in. It's a pleasure. George Orwell didn't tour well. He could be heard to murmur rude remarks about Burma. Well, I know I'm a poor substitute for oneself, but I'm back here and Sophie's stuck around to talk a little bit about poetry in the New Statesman. In the centenary issue, we've got some of our greatest archive poems um, from people like Philip Larkin, Yeats, um, Edward Thomas, and some new poems from Chris Reed and Wendy Cope. Um, I'm particularly pleased that we've got Wendy in the issue because she's one of my favourite poets. I interviewed her for the magazine last year, even though she notoriously distrusts journalists. She wrote a poem called Never Trust a Journalist. And she's written a poem for us called Men Talking which I really love. But um, Sophie, what I really wanted to talk to you about was about your kind of campaign to get the younger generation of poets into the magazine again. And I wondered if you could tell me, you know, are, how many people are working as professional poets now? Um, I don't think I have a number, <laughs> but it's certainly a, a thriving uh, world and community. And um, it's been really exciting to invite and have in our pages again, some of those voices. In the centenary issue, there's a interview Julian Barnes when he talks about being the deputy literary editor when he was here um, and the moments when he would look up onto the poetry hook and see the sort of young poets of his day uh, whose poems would all be submitted and they'd be sort of running week to week in the magazine from James Fenton, Clive James, Craig Rain, uh, Philip Larkin um, and a sort of amazing batch of, of young talent of that era and I think it's been for, for a while the New States stop publishing poetry and it's been a, a a good innovation, I think, of the last couple of years that we've brought it back and are tapping into what is a very fertile and lively world. And I suppose some of the people I'm particularly keen on and um, that we've had a few times in the magazine have been people like Joe Dunthorne, um, Emily Berry, whose collection Dear Boy came out recently, and, and a couple of her very spiky, sparky, funny poems have been in the magazine. And Sam Riviere, who recently won and the forward prize for best first collection for his collection 81 austerities and again it's that well as the title maybe suggests they're uh, sort of political satirical in, in moments but also very sharp very funny um and and i think what's also exciting about these young poets is they have a very distinct voice and it's very uh, it's sort of moved on a lot i suppose from what you might assume that the poetic English voice, whether it's pastoral or obsessed with nature or noticing and watching, um, it, it, moving on from that to something which is a lot more urban and has a, a lot more edge to it. Um, and it's been really exciting to have those voices in the magazine. And what kind of subjects are we, are we talking about? Um, I mean, are they, you know, are they, are they very kind of interested in in sort of fancy life or in, are these very grounded in reality and actually the other thing is you know how, how how formal how many formally experimental are they 
They're definitely experimental. I mean, and uh, in terms of sort of, I, th I think what really marks them out is the sort of uh, brilliant sort of attention to language and to original language, and which is what all poetry, good poetry does, of course, is surprise you with its language and its words um, and its rhythms. But I, I think there's a particular... And it's always hard to talk about poetry without sounding kind of glib or, or generalising horribly, but there's a particular sort of modernity, a, uh, a language that feels very current, very now. Um, I think sometimes poetry can ha have, has a bad reputation of drifting off into the sort of, um, into the ether, into some sort of dreamy other uh, landscape, which feels quite remote from our lives wherever we are actually living day to day, whereas these feel very rooted in those lives. And in especially, I, I suppose, John, Joe Dunthorne's, I think of his sort of, you know, really witty poems, of, you know, that bring in pop culture as much as anything else. And th there's just a lot going on in those poems, which feels, which just feels very resonant. The other thing I should probably mention is that we have two poets, John Burnside and also Alice Oswald, have been writing about nature for us, which I have to say, you, I think you owe an apology to my mum, because my mum wanted more than anything. She said, I'm not reading the New Statesman until it's got a gardening column. And so I suggested this jokingly to Jason, the editor, and he said, OK, yeah, we'll, have a, we'll have a gardening column. And then that actually then became a beautiful, lyrical, you know, beautiful writing about urban spaces. But my mum still doesn't know about her herbaceous borders. <laughs> yes, I can see it's, it's, it's Alice Oswald writing very eloquently about spiderwebs is maybe not going to fulfil your mum's need for gardening tips. But they are often, and having just said that what I love about these young poets is that they move away from these sort of, you know, natural world and pastoral poems, um, that has to be probably my favourite thing in the magazine is that nature column because between John Burton and Alice Oswald they've completely sort of reinvented the form I think in a way. Um, John writes very politically about the natural world and about our role within it as in us as humans um, and often our damaging role within it and Alice has sort of created this form which I think is unique to her and unique to sort of journalism in the sense of interviewing people who are well, I remember she there was once a tramp. There was a tramp. There was an under, sort of an undertaker, a, a trumpeter. Uh, yeah. yeah. So and sort of doing it element by element, sort of people who um, work with the natural world in whatever form it is, whether it's digging the earth or cleaning the cobwebs, um, and the results are, are beautiful. And I think there is another great thing about poets is quite often they can write really wonderful prose, and those are two very good examples. Thank you, Sophie. Cyril Connolly would eat and drink bonnily, causing him to shout, In every fat man, a thin one is wildly signalling to be let out. On the 18th of April, the New Statesman will be holding a centenary debate with the title The Left Won the 20th Century. Uh, speaking for the motion will be Mehdi Hassan, me and Simon Heffer, the dream team as I like to think of us. And on the other side will be Tim Montgomery, uh, Ruth Porter and Owen Jones. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, just to um, give you a bit of a preview of what some of the arguments will be coming out on the night will be. So, Raph, first of all, if you had to put your £10 down, who won the 20th century? You're alleging I have £10 to spare. Um, I, I honestly don't know, which is why I love this question, because when, I, when, when we sort of first concocted the idea, my immediate thought was, well, clearly no, because um, it's essentially sort of capitalism is the default setting for the developed world. That's where all the power is. Um, look what's happening in China, the US. You know, how much more crippled could sort of old socialism be 1989 for the Berlin Wall game over for a certain kind of left concept and then you think well actually we have um the sort of social revolutions cultural 
culturally the left sort of completely blasted apart old reactionary views of what society, what behaviour should be. Um, the sort of post-war settlement in Europe um, it gave us public services that even though people think they are under horrific assault from the current government now, sort of parche all that, you know, we recognise that... Um, government intervenes, taxes people, spends it on lifting people out of poverty. That's actually a kind of a settled argument. So I honestly don't know which way to go on this. I'm looking forward to hearing the arguments and then and and believing that whatever the last person I heard said on this, which is what I always do. I shouldn't admit to that, sorry. I think my favourite moment when I was when I phoned up Owen to ask him whether or not he'd be on the panel, on which side he'd be on, and he actually thinks that you know, he's going to be arguing that the left lost the 20th century. And he said, well, the only person who could argue on the other side would be a liberal and he said it with these kind of tongs that placed this word and I said well yeah that's fine Owen but I quite like having the vote I think it's quite important that you know gay people should be allowed to marry that we should you know that the civil rights movement happened um so that, I think that's probably it's it, I think it probably very much depends when you make you're making a social argument or an economic argument right and also it's very important to places in the context of this is the New Statesman Centenary, we're looking at 1913 and we're looking at what was an accepted set of social norms. I mean, a, a year after that, you had the First World War break out, you had a bunch of people, you, you didn't need conscription because so many people thought, oh, what a brilliant thing I really want to do now is go and get myself killed in a muddy field in Belgium because of the king. You know, this is a really completely different set of social and cultural precepts about what your duty is and where you what you should know and understand about your place in society that have been absolutely blasted the part never to be reconstructed and it was the substantially the left of the labor movement that did that so that's a big victory well and the fact that june 1913 was when emily davison threw herself under the king's horse i mean that was the kind of height of the of that early suffragettes movement but i think that his point and i'm probably stealing a lot of his thunder by previewing some of it is that the right has been very good at co-opting those social arguments whereas there's no part of the right-wing economic analysis that, that, that the left is able to use I think up to a point, I, and certainly I think the, uh, I mean, I'm sure, yeah, say a point that will be made is that economic liberalism is is, is so triumphant that it's it sort of a lot of when the left gets angry about the state of things at the moment, the argument gets thrown back. Well, what is your answer economically? And if it's not just top down redistribution through central spending, which the right characterizes as a kind of crude requisitioning of your money and wasting it um what's the alternative and that's only a sort of fledgling intellectual project still on the left you know what is social democracy about in the 21st century when no one seems to have any money um i think you know the broad sweep of history will show that ultimately you, know, you look at the conservatives they still can't do compassion convincingly in politics because ultimately people want government to be nice to poor people. They really do. And the right wing parties really struggle to persuade anyone that they can do that. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing which way you vote. We will have a vote at the beginning, at the end, and then see whether or not actually um, anyone's, uh, anyone's been persuaded of the other way around. So that's the 18th of April. That's at Conway Hall near Hoban Tube. And you can buy a ticket for that at newstatesman.com forward slash events. Thanks, Ralph. J.B. Priestley was rarely beastly. He preferred to sit on the fence of plain common sense. Alex Hearn joins me now. Alex, you're our resident young person and internet and GIF correspondent. But this week we'll be talking about Bitcoin, which most people, I would say over the age of maybe 26, have no idea what it is. So go on, in three words, tell me what Bitcoin is. Um, I'm going to say hyphens make it one word. So it's an anonymous peer-to-peer -peer currency. And why is it in the news? Uh, basically because it's worth well over 10 times what it was three months ago. 
And you've written a piece for the magazine that says that you think this is a this is a bubble, which I know angry Bitcoiners have been besieging the website for some time. They're so angry. But why are they angry? Well, the why is the most interesting thing about it. I mean, it's in a bubble because it's in a bubble. It's a speculator's bubble. It's the same as with tulips or South Sea stocks or, you know... Uh, the internet in So people are seeing the prices going up and they want in on it. Exactly. People people want to buy low and sell high and that pushes the price up and it's it's all that. The really interesting thing is is these communities who see Bitcoin as more than just something that you can speculate on and make a quick buck and see it as sort of uh, almost this religious thing because the, the communities are a mixture of the, the cryptography communities and hardcore libertarians and supporters of Ron Paul's presidential campaign in 2008. You know, this weird bubble of internet centrist libertarians so they like it because there's no kind of central authority right quite it it basically if it works proves their theories about economics right it proves that the federal reserve is evil and that socialism is bad and that everything should be set free from government constraint and if it fails it it proves you know even given the fairest game possible their ideas still don't really work so that makes them very, very angry when you suggest that it might be doomed to fail. But there have been a couple of big shocks recently. It fell sort of $20 in a couple of hours recently. I mean, this is something that you get with a speculator's bubble. Uh, because there's no fundamental strength to it, uh, a slight dip can be multiplied tenfold and drop $10 in an hour and then rise $20 in the next hour. I, I think eventually that volatility is going to result in it dropping $200 in a day and the and then bubble will burst. Everyone out. After that, though, I mean, is there actually any use for Bitcoin? I mean, there's clearly deficiencies in the way money is transferred on the internet right now. Um, you know, PayPal has a monolithic hold and abuses that quite a lot. Bitcoin has potential. We should say, in terms of PayPal, it, it, for example, it can it takes it kind of takes moral positions on the things that it's willing to do business for. For example, it does. Uh, it takes moral positions. Also, just if it's if it suspects abuse, it will freeze all your funds. And you know, small businessmen, small people running small internet businesses have, have just been locked out of all their money yeah. because a customer has complained wrongly. This this sort of thing happens. Um, but the problem is, Bitcoin runs on basically very very complex maths and. There is a question as to whether that would scale very well, or if it did scale, whether it would scale in such a way that it didn't just result in another form of centralization, so that the people running the Bitcoin servers in the year 2050 will just be JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs and Barclays, and we're back where we started. That's fascinating. And I know that something that you've written about have been various types of internet currencies, in-game currency, for example. So uh, it's Valve, isn't it, the game company, who have hired an economist to look at in markets within games. Yeah, Valve um, Valve saw this this Greek economist who'd been writing about the eurozone and realised that their their grand ambition is to move their their hat based currency that Team Fortress Two uses uh, into a, a hat based currency. Yeah, uh, Team Fortress Two players like hats and they trade hats and they've kind of ended up in a barter economy. It's brilliant. Um, That's my second favourite after the hamburger dagger market crash in Diablo <laughs> Three. Which weird internet economics and that's back to speculation because there was speculation in the hamburger dagger market and then suddenly the bottom fell out the market and everyone was trying to sell their hamburger daggers a hamburger dagger is a dagger which is a hamburger so um, it wasn't actually particularly useful as a dagger that was the fundamental <laughs> problem that it came down to but i think we'll probably have to leave it there but um yeah if you're interested in any of this stuff do read alex's uh, economics blog on the new statesman website and thanks alex thanks Alan. you've been listening to the new statesman centenary podcast 
Today's podcast was presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Raphael Baer, Caroline Crampton, Jonathan Derbyshire, George Eaton, Sophie Elmhurst, Alex Hearn, Philip Moore, Will Self, Daniel Trilling, Yanis Babulias, Laurie Penny, produced by Yozushi, and our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back in two weeks' time for our next episode, and you can find all our episodes at www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.